This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde asks, who gains from Rishi's long-term thinking? And journalist Simon Hattonstone meets the illustrious Joan Collins to discuss love, loss and lust at 90. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, let Rishi be Rishi is the new Tory catchphrase. So far, notes Marina Hyde, that seems to be code for let Britain be rubbish. In the meantime, Suella Braverman is circling. Read by Evelyn Miller. Buy shares in gun turrets because Suella Braverman has made landfall in Washington to offer her esteemed take on the 1951 UN Refugee Convention. As a former practitioner in the field of, hang on, let me get my magnifying glass, planning law, the Home Secretary will regard herself as vastly superior to any of the legal minds who collaborated on the multilateral post-war treaty, as well as far better suited to rocking a Suella for Leader t-shirt at any future pledge drive or torchlit pitchfork procession. In the strict interests of appropriate venues, The United States has never actually ratified the convention. But that's not important, because the Home Secretary obviously thinks one of its soft wingnut think tanks will serve as a cool backdrop. Think of her trip as the international equivalent of one of those primary school visits that a campaigning politician uses to announce a new weapons contract, or crackdown on sex offenders. It's top flight politics. This is just how we do it. Back at home, meanwhile, things feel less full of promise for Suella's beleaguered line manager. The Prime Minister's handlers seem to have alighted on a plan that some summarise as let Rishi be Rishi, a strategy that assumes Rishi Sunak has a personality other than billionaire dweeb with a govern-like-no-one's-watching decal on his kitchen wall. Nonetheless, 
breaking the glass on this time-warm phrase formulation does perhaps indicate we have reached a particular stage of the game. As with, let truss be truss, let Boris be Boris, and even let Gordon be Gordon, this exultation tends to come late in the political day. It always feels like a nice way of saying that the individual in question is terminally inadequate, but that all options for disguising this have now been exhausted. Still, what does Rishi being Rishi look like? Instructed to buy a character off the peg, the PM seems to have decided his defining trait is long-termism. And in order to show his frustration with short-termism, Sunak has hit on the galaxy brain idea of rowing drastically back on two long-term projects. Both HS2 and Net Zero targets now seemed destined for one of Sunak's seven bins, a hint that he hasn't taken the country's rejection of his party in the opinion polls too well. The Net Zero U-turn in particular suggests our spurned hero is at the stage of buying sulfuric acid and going to the country with the slogan, If I can't have you, no one can. In fact, next month's Conservative Party conference will be held under a banner reading, Long-term decisions for a brighter future. A slogan so tedious that I can only read up to the word decisions before having to break off and stare defeatedly out of a window for an hour. Somewhat awkwardly, the aforementioned party conference will take place in Manchester, meaning that Sunak is currently having to pretend that that bit of the HS2 line might still happen. Then as soon as he is back in London, he can effectively reveal he was just being polite. As I say, this is top-flight politics. It's how we do it. Yes, as things are mooted... The long-planned, hugely expensive London to Manchester HS2 line will go to neither London nor Manchester. A genuine feat of infrastructural dadaism that should receive some kind of global recognition. This may be the most embarrassing British folly since Watkins Tower. A late 19th century attempt to build a tower in Wembley Park that was almost an exact rip-off of the Eiffel Tower, except 150 feet higher. Only the bottom layer was ever built, before it was discovered that the foundations were unsteady and the builder went bust. It was eventually brought down in a controlled explosion. In fairness to Sunak, the over-budget, under-managed horror show into which HS2 has thus far descended isn't really his fault, but it is arguably a bit of a pisser for a man who only last week decided to lay out what he felt was British people's major gripe about our politics. They feel that much gets promised, but not enough is delivered. We really are through the looking glass if cancelling some more delivery is the answer. Despite having correctly diagnosed the problem, Sunak comes across as a sort of robo-carer, whose display reads, We're doing everything we can. The impression is of an administration that has stopped trying to fix problems and is now trying to convince people that they need to live with them. It's palliative politics, giving the tacit impression that the best the UK can be offered is a sort of of end-of-country care. 
Of course, an even less appealing option is available. And as Rishi lets himself be Rishi, we are, almost incredibly, starting to see sightings of it in the wild. Last week, following the Net Zero announcement, Tory MP Chris Skidmore refused to rule out submitting a no-confidence letter, while another former minister told The Guardian, there is a sense Sunak can't win an election. People are thinking about that and increasingly irritated. In November, his 12 months are up and it only takes 15% to call a no-confidence vote. Surely, surely not. And I do mean that. Even so, the most realistic short and medium-term advice you can offer to anyone hoping to hear much less from Suella Braverman is get used to disappointment. That was Who Gains from Rishi's Long-Term Thinking? Not the Planet, Not the North, Not Even Him by Marina Hyde Read by Evelyn Miller Next Joan Collins has been famous for more than seven decades and has as much zest and ambition today as she did at 18. Simon Hattonstone pulls up a chair with the elusive star to discuss fame, politics, the casting couch, motherhood and marrying five times. Read by Niamh Kuzak. This article mentions sexual assault. Please take care while listening. Joan Collins steps out of the chauffeur-driven limo. White frock, wide-brimmed white hat, huge shades, rocks on her fingers. Even if she wasn't Joan Collins, you would stop to look. Some people just have the air of a star. At 90, hers shows no sign of waning. Although, as she reminds me a number of times, we don't discuss age in Dame Joan's world. This is one of her favourite restaurants, close to her home in southwest London. We are here to talk about her new one-woman show and book called Behind the Shoulder Pads. The head waiter directs us to our table in the corner. He is delighted to see Collins, and Collins is delighted to be here. She loves her food. The asparagus with soft poached eggs is very good, and the gnocchi. Everything's good, Simon. If you're going to have a start at the carpaccios, great. She pauses. Are you a vegan? The question has an accusatory tone. After all, this is The Guardian, and Collins has never done a proper sit-down interview with us before. Although a voracious newspaper reader, she does not find The Guardian simpatico. I'm not interested in what they write. I have tried. Sorry about that. People say, stay away from the Guardian, for God's sake. What persuaded you to talk to us? She points to her friend and publicist, Alex, who is sitting at the table with us. She did. She had to persuade me. I think you're safe with me, I say. I think I am. And I'm not vegan, I tell her. So, it's carpaccio all round, for starters. It's really hot in here. Collins says. They usually have air conditioning. No problem. She reaches into her handbag, pulls out a battery-operated fan and sits it on the table. Collins looks pleased with herself. A girlfriend bought it for me last year. It's brilliant. Here, try it. 
She talks in a hybrid accent reminiscent of mid-20th century British Hollywood stars such as Cary Grant. The head waiter returns to the table. A few things about the menu, he says. Today, I'm afraid that carpaccio is not available, and I cannot cut any ham, but I can do the buffalo with tomatoes instead of ham. Oh, dear, a disappointed Colin says. She picks herself up. What's the special? We don't have any, madam. Today, we are making some work in the kitchen. Can you do a salad? She asks. Yes, of course, madam. We have on the menu the courgette salad, tiny slices of courgettes with parmesan. She looks horrified. No, I don't like courgettes. Can you do a simple mixed salad? Lettuce and tomatoes, he says. Yes, just very simple. Lettuce, tomatoes and avocado. We don't have any avocado, madam. Do you have any lime juice? Oh, we can make some for you. No, not fresh, she says. Bottled. No, sorry, madam. It could be a scene from Faulty Towers, but Collins handles it with grace. Fortunately, the asparagus and eggs is still on the menu, and she settles for the tomato and lettuce salad to start. A glass of rosé, I suggest. Collins says she couldn't. Last night, she celebrated her daughter Tara's birthday. To be honest, I'm a bit hungover. Collins has been famous for longer than most of us have been alive, and in different ways. She got her break as an actor at 17, cast as a juvenile delinquent in the film I Believe in You. In her first few movies, she played bad girls, quite at odds with the young Collins. I don't know if you ever saw any of those. I'm talking about my rank films. And rank they were. In 1955, she was signed by 20th Century Fox and touted as the new Elizabeth Taylor. Although a household name, she never quite lived up to that billing. Collins gave up on movies for much of the 1960s to bring up the first two of her three children. After a stint in horror movies, such as Tales from the Crypt in the early 1970s, a very different Collins emerged in the late 1970s with two hugely successful soft porn films, The Stud and The Bitch. That paved the way for her best-known role as the scheming narcissist Alexis Colby in the US soap opera Dynasty. She has written 19 books, including a number of best-selling bonkbusters, like her sister Jackie Collins, who was worth an estimated £120 million when she died in 2015 and has been a columnist for The Spectator magazine. But Collins is also famous for her private life. She has been married five times, most happily to her current husband, Percy Gibson, and her lovers have included Warren Beatty, Ryan O'Neill, Marlon Brando and Harry Belafonte. I ask Alex how she got to know Collins, she says she was friendly with her daughter, Tara. I've known Joan since I was a little girl, but Joan didn't have time for me in those days. Oh, that's nice, Colin says. Yes, go on. Cement my reputation as a bitch. Is that an unfair reputation? Yes, I think it's really unfair. Just because I played Alexis so brilliantly, she said modestly, I'm tart with her. And the producers really enjoyed making it as if I were her. 
all the publicity they put out, they had a direct line to the National Enquirer. I remember meeting Kirk Douglas on a boat in Cannes, as you do, when I was publicizing The Bitch, and all of a sudden this balloon goes up over the sea with a big banner saying, Joan Collins is The Bitch. And I said, oh my God, Kirk, I hate that. It should be Joan Collins as The Bitch. And he said, honey, that's really good news. That means you've really made it. I said, I thought I made it a long time ago. So it was all marketing? Well, it worked for them. I can't say I was thrilled with being constantly labeled a bitch. It's quite hurtful and unkind, and most people who know me don't think I am. But I am outspoken, and I don't suffer fools by any means. She gives me a sharp look. Have you met many fools in your life? I've married too many of them. But you found the right man now. Oh, yes, Percy and I have been married for 21 years, and it's just marvellous. There was much talk in the early days about him being 32 years younger. When asked about it, she replied, Well, if he dies, he dies. She is a natural wit, and you know you could be the butt of it at any second. Collins looks wonderful. Green eyes sparkling like gemstones. Bright red lips, perfect complexion. Your skin is amazing, I say. Thank you. I've had nothing done. I couldn't do all that. First of all, I'm needle-phobic. It was my mother who told me to moisturize and use night cream. I told my two girls, and both of them have fabulous skin. And stay out of the sun. Her father, Joseph, a Jewish South African, was an agent to the stars. Shirley Bassey, Roger Moore, and, for a while, the Beatles. Her mother, Elsa, an Anglican Briton, was a dance teacher. She adored her mother, who died at 52, but Collins knew she wanted a very different life. Mummy was the 1950s housewife, very sweet and docile. Didn't you once say you thought she died so young because, she finishes the sentence for me, she didn't answer back to Daddy. I inherited my father's outspokenness. My father never held back. I saw him as a figure to look up to more than my mother. I loved her to death, but I considered her to be weak, and I hated all the clothes she wore, the underpinnings, the stockings and suspenders, girdles, tight bras and corsets. I abhorred that. At 18... She was voted the most beautiful girl in England by a photographer's association. When the newspapers asked her father what he thought, he said, I'm amazed. She's a nice enough looking girl, but nothing special. By now, she had left the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, Rada, was in love with the French existentialists, worshipped the singer Juliette Greco, and dreamed of being a great stage actor. But movies got in the way. In Hollywood, she says, she was verbally abused on a daily basis. They had all sorts of horrible names for me in the makeup department. They called me Moonface because I had a lot of baby fat, and Spindly Legs because I had scrawny legs. The makeup department was huge, and all these women were mean and hard. They were to me, anyway. In 1955, at 22, 
She starred in The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, a biopic about Evelyn Nesbitt, who was considered the most beautiful girl in New York. I was still in my Juliette Greco stage, so I had no makeup, jeans, and scruffy hair. And the director, Richard Fleischer, came in and said, Oh my God, I cannot look at you. You are so ugly. He said, You cannot go around like that. Put some makeup on. Get your hair done. Get a proper dress. They took you down all the time at Fox. That's why when I was younger, I wouldn't go out without five inches of pancake on. But she had already suffered worse. Collins was such an innocent in every sense when she started out. At the age of 17, still a virgin, she went on a date with the 31-year-old actor Maxwell Reed. Back in his apartment, she says, he raped her after spiking her rum and coke. I was 17, but I was the equivalent mentally of 12. We did not have sex education. I never saw a penis till I got raped, and then I refused to look at it. <laughs> My mother told me men only want one thing, and I guess she was right. <laughs> it's a typical Collins reaction, to laugh it off. She has never seen herself as a victim. Whenever she was wronged or abused by the men in her life, she somehow coped and eventually bettered them. She has a great throaty cackle of a laugh, however bleak the subject, and I tell her as much. Thank you. That's what Percy said when he fell in love with me. Astonishingly, Reed went on to be her first husband. You married your rapist, I ask, still not quite believing it. Yes, because I come from a generation where if you're going to have sex, you get married. When she discovered that he was offering her to older men for £10,000 a night, on the condition that he could watch, she decided enough was enough. After four years, they were divorced. Still in her early 20s, Collins decided to take control of her love life. I lived with several men, one after another. I was a serial monogamist. Did you regard yourself as unconventional? Yes, I realized I was unconventional. I thought, there's nothing wrong with this. I lived with Sidney Chaplin, then Arthur Lowe Jr. Then I had an affair with a married man. It was utter hell. Was that the only time? Yes, I would never do it again. Why was it such hell? The deceit, she says. He was very handsome, very urbane, incredibly witty, fascinating, and eight years older than me. George England was a film director, married to the actor Cloris Leachman at the time. It's no secret anymore. I went with Warren Beatty, sort of to get over George. Meanwhile, in Hollywood, time and again, she dodged the casting couch. In her new autobiography, Behind the Shoulder Pads, she writes that she was promised the role of Cleopatra in Joseph L. Mankiewicz's movie if she agreed to be nice to the head of Fox, Buddy Adler, and the chairman of the board. I couldn't, and I wouldn't. The very thought of these old men touching me was repugnant. This was a time when actors and directors and producers took it as their right to take their pick of the pretty young actresses. And it was very sad. I never went along with that. Ever. Never. 
the casting couch. The part of Cleopatra eventually went to Elizabeth Taylor. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, I'm Grace Ben. I'm back and I've been busy. Comfort Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Joan Collins. The most searing chapter in the book is when Collins writes about becoming pregnant at 26 with her fiancé Beatty, then a 23-year-old aspiring actor, and having an abortion. Beatty does not come out of it well. When she told him she was pregnant, he asked how it happened and told her it was terrible. On the morning of the procedure, she felt she couldn't go ahead with it. Beatty said she had to because it would wreck their careers. All these years later... She says Beatty was right. If she had had the baby, her movie career would have been kaput. And, most importantly, she wouldn't have gone on to have her three children, Tara and Alexander with husband number two, the actor and singer-songwriter Anthony Newley, and Katiana with number three, the businessman Ron Cass. Her first four husbands all failed her in shocking ways. She loved Newley, but then he had cast her in his film Can Eronymous Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness about a superstar singer and serial shagger. She realised the film was autobiographical, and that did for their marriage. When she married Cass, he had recently lost his job as the head of the Beatles label Apple. Almost immediately, he became dependent on her for money to buy heroin. In 1985, she married husband number four, the former pop star Peter Holm, who, according to Collins, was an abusive, money-hungry cheat. She refers to him only as the Swede. They divorced in 1987. Can you rank your husbands? Well, you know who the best is. I don't have to go there. And the worst? Maxwell Reed. Second worst? The Swede. And the others? No, they're both the fathers of my children. I'm not going to go into that. With Newley and Cass, she says, there were great times. When I was married to Ron, we had six children between us. How did you cope? 
very, very well. I'm a very good mother. I made huge lamb stews and toad in the hole, always one big thing. I love being a mother. I've been a full-time mother a lot of times, and a single mum, and that is not easy. My heart goes out to single mums, particularly when you've got a job that is not nine to five. Collins looks at my notepad. What's that? Your crib sheet? She is nibbling her way through her salad. Mmm, she says, as if it's the finest thing she has ever tasted in her life. This is boring. I think she means the salad, but it could be me. She is definitely not impressed when I ask her which of her thesp friends is her favorite. No, I'm not going to say that. That would be unfair. It's a boring question. Come on, Simon, you can do better than that. Consult your crib sheet. I bet you tell some good stories in the pub, she says, going all northern on me. I bet you do, about the people you've interviewed. Which actress have you liked best? I'm not sure where to start. Helen Mirren, she offers. I bet you like Helen Mirren. I do, I say. And your favorite? Penelope Cruz, maybe? Oh, yes, she's lovely. Was she interesting? She asks pointedly. Okay, Tilda Swinton, I say. Oh, God, yes, she must be brilliant. I've met her. Who didn't you like? She asks. Before I've opened my mouth, she answers for me. Ben Kingsley. Nobody likes Ben Kingsley. He insists on being called Sir Ben, I say. How ridiculous. It's amazing how overly privileged some actors are. I hate that because the few who are like that taint the rest of us. It's almost half a century since she made The Stud and The Bitch. While the films were hardly masterpieces, they were radical in their own way. Back then, it was almost unheard of for women in their 40s to play sexy and powerful. I tell her I saw a quote from Joanna Lumley saying that back in the day, actresses always had to take their tops off, and she hated it. I assume that, in Colin's case, she had made the decision and was in control. Both films were adaptations of her sister's novels. She shakes her head. I hated it. I know there are some women who can do it, but I'm a bit shy. If you found undressing for the camera uncomfortable, what led you to strip for Playboy in 1984? She looks at me as if it's the most stupid question in the world. I got paid $100,000. She cites a sex scene that made her particularly uncomfortable. I particularly hated doing it with George Peppard in The Executioner because he hated me and I hated him. Why did you hate him? Because he made a pass at me before we went on set. A lot of actors took it as their divine right to have sex with their leading ladies. We'd been to a pre-production party and he'd had a bit to drink and he said he'd drop me home, so I said, okay. Then at the door, he did the usual thing, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't. And he said, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm married and I've got two children. What was the usual thing? Oh, well, you know, grab, grab. When he didn't get what he wanted, he told her she was a square. Was it stressful making the movie with him? Yes, because he didn't speak to me all the way through. 
Thank God he didn't play the lead in Dynasty. You know, he was cast as Blake Carrington before it became Dynasty when it was called Oil. After two episodes, he was fired by the executive producer Aaron Spelling because he was so obnoxious and difficult and appalling. So I vouch for that. Colin's first novel, Prime Time, was published in 1988, a year before the original dynasty ended. How did Jackie feel when her sister also started writing bonkbusters? Bonkbusters? How dare you? <laughs> we didn't really discuss it at all. It was the elephant in the room. Do you think it caused tensions? I think it did for a while, yeah. And then everything smoothed over. In general, she says, they were not competitive about their success. It was different. I was an actress. She misses Jackie terribly. My sister died of breast cancer, and I'd been nagging her for years to go and have mammograms, because I did. I was terrified of getting it. Jackie had never had a mammogram? No, she didn't believe in doctors. She wouldn't go to the doctors. It's very sad. Very sad. There are so many people who have died that she misses, she says. She tells me about the time she was at RADA and the teacher made fun of her boy because he had a Manchester accent. It wasn't Albert Finney, was it? No, she says wistfully. I can't believe Albert Finney's dead and Dudley Moore and Peter Cook. When I was married to Tony and we lived in New York, all of those people were the young British Turks. Jonathan Miller, Peter O'Toole, Buddy Greco, Paul Anker. That was a great generation. I used to cook for them all on Sundays. Sunday roast with the full-on roast potatoes like my mother did. These days, she splits her time between London, Los Angeles, and the south of France. I ask her if Britain has changed much in her life. Come on, are you seriously asking me that question? Does Britain seem to have changed? Yes. I defy you to drive down any street that doesn't have the road up or scaffolding. Thank you, Mayor Khan. That's all I'm going to say about that. I don't quite see how you can blame Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, for the state of the whole country, but she is on a roll. And there's this Euler's thing. I, I've got a lot of friends who don't have that much money and having to pay tariffs to come into London. Having said all this, she insists Britain is the greatest country in the world. Why do you think every immigrant wants to come here? In the late 1990s, she became a guest diarist for The Spectator, then edited by Boris Johnson. I love Boris, she says. Would you like to see him back in politics? I'm not going to answer that question. I know the newspaper you work for. I really don't think actors should get involved in politics. Everybody knows that I'm not terribly woke, as it were. At one point, Collins was a patron of UKIP, although at the same time she said that didn't mean she would vote for the party. She has always had friends in high places. King Charles is said to have written a letter celebrating her décolletage. She once played a game called What Have We Never Done with Prince Andrew. And she met the Queen on numerous occasions. Did Her Majesty ever give Collins good advice? No, I don't think the Queen's an agony aunt. No, 
She was also friends with Margaret Thatcher. Loved her. Loved her to bits. I was at her 80th birthday, but she was very frail then. She could hardly stand up. And you know, the Queen and Philip came to that party. I went to her funeral. I was so sad. I think she was destroyed by the jealousy of the men in Parliament. I really admired her strength. She said something, and it might have been unpopular, but she went ahead with it. Does she see something of Thatcher in herself? I suppose if I sat down and analysed it, but I never have. I ask if she has ever considered retiring. She looks appalled. No. The thing is, actors can go on forever because there are always roles for them. She was outraged when introduced at an event as the ex-actress Joan Collins. There is nothing ex about her, and she hopes there never will be, as long as she still has breath in her. The project I'm most excited about is a script that's been written for me called In Bed with the Duchess by Louise Fennell, she says. It's the true story of the last years of the Duchess of Windsor after the Duke dies. She was abused by this woman who took her over and took away her objects, her money, and left her practically destitute. The more she talks about it, the more animated she becomes. So you see her, first of all, when she's full of pep, and she's got her young acolytes around her. Then, bit by bit, she's destroyed by circumstances. It's a very good script, and it's a great part for me. I've always been fascinated by Wallace because I think she was unfairly treated. She asks the waiter for an espresso. I need the coffee to wake me up. I try not to take offence and tell her that one of my favourite performances of hers was in a short film called Jerry that she made five years ago. It's quiet, subtle, understated, everything you don't expect from Collins. See? You sound surprised. I can act, you know. I don't just do the sophisticated bitch parts. You are fabulous in those, I say, but it's great to see you doing something so different. Thank you. Thank you so much. I won two awards for it, she says proudly. I wish we didn't have to go out tonight, she says to Alex. Where are they off to? Collins becomes coy. Ah, it's a secret. How many words do you have to write? Loads, I say. Two thousand, she guesses. Two thousand, I say. I don't get out of bed for less than two thousand five hundred. Very good. Touché. Well, please be kind. She asks if I will be going to her show and says how much she is looking forward to it. I'll be talking about lots of old stars, and in the second half I take questions from the audience. What do they tend to ask about? My beauty routine and who was the best kisser of all the actors you've worked with? Good question. Who was it? Poor Newman. In a relationship or a film? In a film. Do they ask who her best lover was? Yeah, I hedge that question. I always say my husband. Percy? Yes, that is probably true. Collins has such zest. She tells me she's been blessed with the happy gene. I'm so lucky to have that. Has anything interrupted the happiness? Yes, many things, many, many things. My youngest daughter had a terrible accident. 
I've been sued by random hats. All my husbands except Tony sued me for money. I have been embezzled by business managers and husbands. Yeah, a lot of things. But her happy gene remains intact. As she puts her shades and hat back on, she tells me about her plans for the next few days. Tomorrow we're going to Ascot, and we've got a few social things going on this week. Then my son is coming in with a baby, and we'll be hanging out with the baby and doing things till we go to the south of France. Your appetite for life seems undiminished, I say. Yes, absolutely, she says fervently. You have to eat life, or life will eat you. That was Joan Collins on Love, Loss and Lust at 90. You have to eat life, or life will eat you. By Simon Hattonstone. Read by Niamh Kuzak. Behind the Shoulder Pads, Tales I Tell My Friends is out now. To support The Guardian and The Observer, order your copy at guardianbookshop.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Evelyn Miller and Niev Kuzak and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.